as it were, these bookends. How you begin with something and then it kind of seems to be the similar story on the end of it. And then you have something in the middle. It seems to me oftentimes that in the middle of it is one of the key issues that we're trying to face. We've covered the first five chapters and most of that looking at the generations of Adam, of looking at what I have called the life and times of Adam, because it's not just of Adam, it is about his offspring. And we've seen that how ultimately sin is persisting. The seed of Adam is persisting, but so is the offspring of Eve. We know that the promise that we were given in Genesis chapter 3 is the promise that the, the offspring of the woman is going to come and crush the head of the serpent. That's the glorious promise that we're looking to. And we saw that last week, especially as it continues. Yes, sin is persisting, but yes, God's promises are also persisting. What a wonderful blessing to remember, especially if you're a children that are in the wilderness, especially if you're a children in the wilderness, knowing that you're not going to enter into the promised land for a generation, and especially when you know that an entire generation is dying out before you enter in. <coughs> so that is where we find ourselves this morning. Even we may begin to associate in many ways with a wilderness people that we know that heaven is to come. We know where we're headed. We know the goal of what's ahead, but we don't know when we're going to get there necessarily. For some people, we have shorter lives. For other people, we have longer lives. We don't know what time we're going to go. I always used to hear preachers say, and I guess the older I'm getting, the more that it seems to be. They said, you go to a graveyard, and there's all sizes of graveyards out there. And I found that might not be the biggest thing. They all seem to be standard plots for the most part, but surely I do. I start looking at some of the tombstones and I start reading some of the dates on these things. And I, I actually love to go to an old cemetery and see some of these names that have probably been forgotten about. They died out and the, at the end of the 1800s, probably somebody in their family may remember a story about them that has been handed down. But most of these people have been forgotten. And yet even in the first generations of the Word of God, the first generations are being recalled. Most of Israel has forgotten their heritage. Many of the records have been destroyed and they don't know who comes from what tribe anymore. A lot of the richness of their history has been lost due to circumstance over time, but they still know they are a people. They are a people that belongs to God. They are a people that associate themselves with God. Beloved, that's the same claim that you and I have to make this morning, that God, that He would help us to break the, the, the iciness of our hearts, the iciness of our demeanors, the iciness of just our the way that we handle the world and understanding who that we are. So many times I look at the people that have a Jewish background, and I do, I see so much pride about them. And I, maybe in a negative sense, truly it is, but they know that they are people. They know that they are people with an identity, and they're proud of that identity. Have you been paying attention? I'm not going to go into it. I'm definitely not getting into geopolitical matters. But have you paid attention how that when Israel called for their troops to return, have you noticed how that so many of them returned? It's almost that it was not a question that they were going to return to their home country, and they were going to take up arms, and they were going to do what was necessary. There are people who know who they belong to. They know their heritage in that sense and where they're belonging to. Beloved, the same must be true of us. One of my favorite preachers, you all have heard me talk about him numerous times, is Herschel York. How his father, when he was going out, would remind him, he said, remember who you are and remember who you represent. Beloved, that should be true of us every single day of our lives, of remember who you are and remember who you represent. But yet, in this world that we're reading about in Genesis chapter 6, it seems that all, or at least most of that, has been forgotten. And truly, Genesis chapter 6 is largely a tragic tale, is largely a tragic accounting of what has happened. We are moving from the days of Adam 
into the days of Noah, as it were. So without further ado, let us begin reading together this morning. Again, it is rather lengthy of a passage, so I ask that as you remain seated that you will read and reverence the Word of God as it should be this morning as we read together in Genesis chapter 6. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, daughters and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. Verse 5, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is before me. For the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Rooms shalt thou make in an, the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. And then is the fashion which thou shalt make it of. The length of the ark shall be three hundred cubits, and the breadth of it fifty cubits, and the height of it thirty cubits. A window shalt thou make to the ark, and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above. And the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof, with lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make it. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. But with thee will I establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons, and thy wife, and thy sons' wives with thee. And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort shalt thou bring into the ark, to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female, of fowls after their kind, and of cattle after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after his kind. Two of every sort shall come unto thee to keep them alive. And take thou unto thee of all food that is eaten, and thou shalt gather it to thee, and it shall be for food for thee and for them. Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. Let us go to the Lord in prayer together this morning. Father, we thank you again for this magnificent passage that you've set before us. God, how it is that every single week we seem to have 
that same confession. But God, how sweet and how precious Your Word is in every passage we do discover. God, some of it we may not understand, but God, we pray that You would help us to understand. But whatever the case may be, God, there are many things we can split hairs over. Help us to find the clarity of Your Word. Help us to find the unity in Your Word. Father, help us to find those things which unite us to what You are having us to see in these precious pages of God. Father, we love You. We thank You. We pray again that You'll feed Your lambs and feed Your sheep getting all the honor and glory to your high and holy name, that I would speak only that which you would have us do this morning. Thy son, Jesus, amen and amen. This morning, the message seems to be quite simple. But if you begin to look it up, and I don't know, some of you have study Bibles, I'm sure. Some of you have study Bibles with you this morning even. And if you begin to check, I kind of see about, I don't know, you can see five sections. That's the, initially the way that I saw it. I, I was kind of reviewing it this morning, and I kind of saw three sections. I combined some of them. But either way, there's a middle section, and we'll get to that down the road. But in order to get to the middle section, you have to get to the first section. And the first section, I'm going to call one through three this morning. We're going to talk about five movements in the text this morning. So in the first movement of the text, it says, And it came to pass when man began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. Now, a lot of ink has been spilt on these particular verses, and then, of course, going into 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 as well even, but especially in these first several verses, like I said, a lot of ink has been spilled. What does it mean that the sons of God came down to the daughters of men? What does it mean that all of this is happening? And there's various opinions. Some say it's angels, and then somebody pointed out and said, well... It says elsewhere in the Bible that the angels neither are in marriage or given in marriage or anything like that. So that kind of seems to defeat that purpose. And I say all of that to say that I don't know exactly who these folks were. Some people said that it's the line of Cain, marrying the line of Seth. And may, maybe that's true. Maybe that's what it is. All that I know how to tell you with absoluteness is something in these first several verses is somebody's in charge, somebody thinks they're in charge rather, and it doesn't seem to be God. It doesn't seem to be that as we saw in the beginning, as we saw the first marriage, that God was the one that gave away the bride. We saw these different things in that wonderful, beautiful language that we see in so many wedding ceremonies, but it seems to be they're not thinking much of God. It seems to be that they're taking these things upon themselves. They're living for 900 years, for 800 years, unless of course you're Enoch, and then you only live 365 years, and you walked with God, you were no more, so that was a difference of a situation. You see, somebody was only 777 years, but either way, you and I look at that and we would see that the young adults could be up to 200 years of age. It's a wild thing to consider how long these people were living. It seems to be that much of the world is being focused on what the world is doing. We saw how the generations of Cain, if you'll remember, how they were artificers of brass. They were the makers of music. They were all of these different things. Industry was coming through the line of Cain and here it seems to be that everybody is focusing on what humanity is doing. Everybody is focused on the goodness of humanity. But in verse 3 it says, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. As best I can tell, that's God calling it and looking at it and saying, This is a cap. This is it. And frankly, as I see that, even in history, even in looking at things, there have been a couple of people that claim to be, but 
the records are kind of spotty on it. It doesn't seem to be. I don't see anybody in this generation in these times that's living past 120 anymore. I don't see anybody in our modern day. I think there may be some recorded later on, but for the most part, I don't see anybody that's living to be 120 years old to this day. There's some that are getting really close. And I'm wondering, what about technology? But I keep wondering is that God has decided to impose a limit even on the length of life. God is bringing these people into remembrance that they are not in charge, but this is his world and he's in charge. He's the boss. This is his book and we must be doing what he would have us to do. So what does that matter? Why would you want to orient yourselves to remember? Maybe we don't have a problem with remembering that God's the boss and that we're supposed to do what he says. And yet you heard us read in Psalm 106 this morning, you heard us reading the history of Israel. We've been seemingly doing that for a few weeks now. And how in book four of the Psalms that we just concluded this morning in Psalm 106, how that all of that in that reading is showing us Israel has a history of unfaithfulness and how that even though God had brought them out of Egypt, they had been unfaithful to God. They had made idols of themselves. They had made idols after their own heart. They had done these works unto themselves and there was a leanness sent into their soul. That's a scary verse to me to hear that language of there's a leanness sent into their soul. That humanity can seem to do so many things and yet it's not good enough. Last night I was having one of these moments to where Miss Tara and I, we were just sitting in the living room. We had background noise on. We were watching some, it's Christmas time. We were watching a Christmas movie and it just was boring. It's one of my favorite Christmas movies. This is one of my favorite movies I've ever seen. I love watching this movie every year with Miss Tara now. It's a wonderful blessing. It's one of the few Christmas movies I've been watching every year since it came out. But beloved, last night I was just bored with it. And sometimes in this world, we just get bored with things. Sometimes in this world, there's just a loneliness and there's just a leanness in the soul because the things of the world will never satisfy. Can I submit to you that's not wrong? That's the way that it ought to feel every now and then. That if you're just now, I have no problem with that movie. I don't think that movie's bad. I don't think that movie's misleading anybody in any way. I'm not saying there's wrong with watching a good Christmas movie every now and then by any means. But beloved, the things of this world are never ultimately and finally satisfying. There's something about this world that is not good enough because there's something about this world that has been corrupted by sinfulness, and that is what God is beginning to address. In verse 4, he continues in our next movement, as it were. It says, There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old, of renown. I don't know everything that that means, but I know these guys, they must have been a big name. They must have been a big people. They must have really had something going on for them. But look what God does in verse 5. He says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That God had created a world that was good. God had created everything. When he looked down in the verse, in the first two chapters, he said, everything is good. Everything is good. Everything is good until he got down to man and he said, it's not good that man should be alone. And then we have, we know that we have community created. Even with Eve is bride, but community as a whole is created here. But the problem with all of community is it seems to be that everybody in the community now, all their hearts, every imagination of the thoughts of their heart was only evil continually. What started out to be the goodness of God in the rest of this world has gone to where every imagination they have is the thoughts of their hearts is only evil continually. I love that story of Alfred Nobel. If you've ever heard it, 
that he was a maker of bombs and he was a maker of all of these different things and he was well known for what he was able to do in terms of destruction. And one day, his brother died. And if you've ever heard the rest of the story, if you heard B92 radio for years, there was a preacher on there that kept telling the story over and over again. I can hear his voice in my head. But he would tell that story and how apparently Alfred Nobel's brother had died and he woke up and he heard his obituary. Alfred Nobel woke up. They thought it was Alfred that had died, not Alfred's brother. And he began to hear the story and they were talking about all the destruction that he had caused because of his inventions. His inventions were quite evil. Now we understand they were trying to be used for good in some ways. They were trying to be used, but that's the problem with the world. Everything good that we try to make for one side can be used for bad on the other side. Everything that's good about this world seems to be turned to evil. Beloved, I can begin to associate. And of course, if you know the rest of the story with Alfred Nobel is, he went home and then he began to do as much things for peace as he could. And that's why we have the Nobel Peace Prize. And all of the Nobel Awards to this day is he tried to turn his life around. He saw all the evil inventions and he turned his life around. But beloved, this generation that is being spoken of in chapter 5 is not like God. Because do you see who repents here? In this case, we have an odd, a very odd sentence in verse 6. It says, And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. In many ways, that's what Alfred Nobel did. I don't know if he repented and trusted in God. I don't know that part of the story. But I know that he repented in the sense that he turned from what he was creating and he began to create as much peace as he could. He began to do as much as he could for peace. In that instance, in that story, it was Alfred Nobel that was the one that repented. In this story, it should be that the that the sons of men that are marrying the, or the sons of God that are marrying the daughters of men, it should be that the creation of God turns to God, repents, and turns to him. But no, instead, in this verse, it is that it, and it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. Somebody was arguing, was, was this a situation where God changed something? Did God not know something? Did God not know all of this that was going to happen? Beloved, we know that God is all-knowing. We know that God is all-powerful. We know that God is all-present in that situation. And we know these things about God. So what does it mean when we come to a passage, if we understand those truths about God, how do we come to this passage and begin to understand that it repented the Lord that He made man on the earth and that it grieved Him at His heart? Beloved, this is language that is trying to get us to better understand God. This is language that God is a spirit. God doesn't have the same form and everything. And we know that God took apart humanity. We know He's seated on the right hand of the Father. We know all of these different things. But even still, this is something that's trying to get God across to us. It's trying to bring God down to us in some sense so that we can understand. In a sense, it's God bringing Himself down so that we can understand that He repented. He was so grieved in his heart that it turned him. He was so grieved that it changed his attitude and his demeanor entirely. Did you not hear the same things in Psalm 106 this morning? That sometimes God changes his attitude toward us? That sometimes God changes how he relates to us on the basis of our behavior? Beloved, do we think that we can go on in evil continually and God not turn from us? And God not turn us over to those that hate us? People complain about this and that with the church and they say the church in America, the church in America, this, this, that, and the other. Beloved, if you will do a deep dive into history, the problem with the church in America is it's never been what it should be. It's never done every single step that it should be. It's never been the entity that it should be here in our country. Beloved, as a matter of fact, we've had to live in so much abundance that we don't know what it's like to face persecution for the most of us because frankly, most of us have never experienced major level persecution. We've experienced some opposition. We've experienced small and minor doses of persecution, perhaps, but never on the level that the early church was printed into. Beloved, it seems to be that in verse 5, the world seems to be going on just fine. 
Everything for the world in these first several verses seems to be going just what I would call hunky-dory. Everything seems to be going well. Do you know something that I notice at restaurants? And just I've only lived a short little while, obviously, but one thing that I notice about restaurants is right now the wait staff's usually not too good. You go somewhere and it's not. Y'all are laughing because y'all know it's not too good. But if you let a hard recession hit the people, do you know what you'll find? All of a sudden, the wait staff are some of the finest folks in the world. All of a sudden, everybody seems to be a whole lot better off because restaurants are hiring the best of the best, not just the rest. I'm not trying to be ugly here. I'm not trying to speak ill of these people. I still know some wonderful wait staff, some people that are wonderful, incredible people. If you don't believe me, just ask Paul and Tanya. They seem to always meet the greatest of people in the world. They've got a waiter at every, or a waiter or a waitress at every restaurant they go to, and I love that testimony. I want to brag on them because they're kind to people, because they're trying to be kind to the wait staff. Beloved, that's just a wonderful thing that I want to give them, as my granddaddy used to call them, flowers this morning, for the way that they behave themselves with wait staff so many a times. But beloved, in the days of abundance, we don't seem to do as well. In days of abundance, we don't seem to need God. But it seems to be that God is needing His people to come back and realize God's the one who's in charge. And He continues this in verse 7, and He says, And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repented me that I have made them. Do you see that this is the same language of His creation? He's saying what He has created, He's going to wipe out. In verse 7, if you were just to end right there, it's not a good story. It seems that God is going to bring a final judgment against sin. And He's going to destroy everything. Everything that was good that He has created has been turned into evil. So the way that He is going to answer it is by wiping them out entirely. But praise God for verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now the Quick book definition or the quick definition of grace is unmerited favor. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. I submit to you that's still probably the best definition I've found for grace is unmerited favor. Noah didn't deserve this favor. Noah seemingly didn't do anything to deserve this favor. Now we're going to get into Noah and the rest of his life later on. We're going to say, is he deserving of that? Can I submit to you that Noah is an interesting story as we continue on? Because it says in verse 8, it says, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. I don't know why God chose Noah. I just know that He did choose Noah. I know that when He relates it to grace, that it was nothing ultimately of what Noah did, but it was just that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That for some reason, God landed on Noah, and Noah was the one that found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He is one of the descendants of Seth. He is one of the offspring of Eve, as it were. If God is going to bring against judgment against the serpent, if God is going to bring judgment against the sinfulness of the world, I'm praising God that He's still doing it through His promised means. I'm praising God that even as we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, that that's exactly what He's going to do. He's going to bring in salvation, even though He's about to exercise judgment, He's also going to preserve His way through His people. In verse 9, it begins to get into this. In verses 9 through 13, to, in so many ways are the heart of this text. He says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations and Noah walked with God. Maybe that's why Noah was found grace in the eyes of God. Maybe that's why. Was it something good that Noah was doing? Was it something extra that Noah was tacking on? God, if I can just do A, B, and C and just add A, B, and C to the cart, will you save me then? Will you be the one that uses me then? No. What Noah was doing, he was a just man and perfect in his generations and Noah walked with God. The actions of Noah are quite simple. 
the actions of Noah are nothing fancy over here. Noah's just walking with God. Noah's doing what his great-granddaddy was doing. His great-granddaddy Enoch walked with God and was no more. I wonder if Noah, because Noah and his great-granddaddy existed in the same time, if I remember my timeline correctly. I can't remember for sure. Maybe they didn't. Maybe Noah didn't see his great-granddaddy. I don't know. I don't have my timeline with me. But even still, maybe Noah heard the stories of Enoch. Even though I don't know what Noah's motivation was, Noah knew to walk with God. And i tell you the best thing that we can just do is just walk with God. It amazes me. I, I get to hang out with a lot of people that at least twice a year I do. They, they know a whole lot of Greek and they know a whole lot of Hebrew and everything else. And I'm not going to degrade them for that because I sure am thankful they know it. This old country boy knows a little bit, but not much. I struggle every single week to try to figure something out, but these guys, they know so much. But some of my favorite saints are just the ones who don't seem to know much of that at all. They seem to know the Bible. That's about it. I love the story of uh, Brother C.L. Powers who has also stood in this same general location in this same building before. That he didn't know what. He didn't know much, but he said, what I do know, I know well. It was kind of his statement. He says he knows what he knows. He said he doesn't know much, but he knows what he knows. Beloved, I don't know that Noah knew much. I don't know that Noah knew all of the history of his people. I don't know that Noah had all of this written down. I don't know what Noah knew, but I know that Noah knew to walk with God. And I know that Noah knew to be a just man and to walk with God and to be perfect in his generation. Does it mean that he was perfect, period? No, it doesn't say that he was perfect, period. It said he was perfect in his generation. It seems to be a comparative statement that compared to everybody else in this world, Noah was the one who reflected God. Do you not see the cries of Christianity as a whole here? Do you not see the cries of what God is asking for the rest of us here? Beloved, I listened to this one guy go through the book of Titus. He was just preaching through Titus very quickly. It was a 30-minute sermon, and he preached through all the book of Titus. Now, we did that. We come here a couple of years ago. It took us three Sundays to do what he did in 30 minutes. And by the time I got done listening to this man, I felt like I hadn't even understood the book of Titus two years ago. He just brought freshness to it. And how he showed everything in there and he showed the qualities of the people in Crete and then he showed the qualities that were supposed to be in Titus and he showed that how they were the opposite. He clarified the whole meaning of the book in less than five minutes. The rest of it was just building up to that point. Beloved, all that the world is looking for is somebody to be different. Ultimately, for somebody to be authentic. Don't believe me, look in politics. You want somebody to be authentic. I don't even know what authentic is supposed to be. Your definition of it may be different than mine. But beloved, there's something about us that the rest of the world can look at somebody like Noah and know Noah walks different. I submit to you, Noah is not doing anything fancy. Noah's just simply doing what he ought to be doing. Beloved, there's something very special about us when we're just doing what we ought to be doing. We don't have to do so many special things. All we have to do is to do what we ought to be doing and that's walking with God. Sometimes we want to get in the complexities. Who were the sons of God? Who were the sons of man? I don't know. Maybe it was this. Maybe it was that. But I can sure tell you that in the heart of this text, it's pointing us to Noah and it's pointing to us who Noah was and that he found grace in the eyes of God. It said in verse 10, it says, And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. I noticed even that. I don't know what to make of it. Nobody else seemed to commentate on it, so they all let me down when I was reading some of the commentators. But it's interesting to me that every genealogy so far has talked about one son. Every genealogy has passed it down from one father down to one son. 
But here all of a sudden we have Noah and it mentions his three sons. Now we know that Christ is going to come through one of the lines. We know that Noah is going to have some problems with one of his sons. One of his sons is going to be kicked outside of the camp. One of his sons is going to be disassociated from the community. But it's interesting to me to know Noah's different. Noah's genealogy is going to be different. Something about Noah is different. That yes, God is bringing judgments, but He is going to preserve Noah. It says in verse 13, or in verse 12, well, let me back up to verse 11. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. Again, showing the totality of the world has been corrupted by these things. In verse 12, and God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted His way upon the earth. Verse 12 is really easy to miss. Verse 12 is really easy to just skim over. It was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted His way upon the earth. That brings back a recollection to Genesis chapter 3 when He kicks them out of the Garden of Eden. And He says, in order to preserve the way of the tree of life. It's interesting to me to note, and I know this is jumping well ahead, but it's interesting to me to note that the word for church is a, a fancy word. You can have a $7 word here called ecclesia is the Greek word for church. And what that word roughly actually translates to is they were first called followers of the way. It's interesting to me that they weren't called Christians until about Antioch, and the Christians was actually a term that was supposed to be derogatory against them, as most terminologies that we cling to are in life. But it was meant to be derogative about them, but originally they were called followers of the way because they were following the way of Christ. There should be something within every one of us that knows that we're supposed to be following the way of Christ. Not the way of Paul, not the way of Apollos, but the way of Christ. That even Paul was having to correct one of the first churches in Corinthians there, and he said, some say I'm of Paul, some say I'm of Apollos. But he said it doesn't matter which one was the sower and which one was the tender. It matters which one gives the increase, and that is God which gives the increase. Beloved, there is the way of the world which is out there to be walked. There is the way of the world which is the way of corruption. But there is the way of God which we are supposed to be working. We are supposed to be living. We are supposed to be walking in. The world has legalized much sin in this world. Okay, big whoop. Go live a life for God. Everything that God throws against us, everything, or not that God throws against us, everything that the world throws against us, God has got His way. And if His people will walk in His way, beloved, it will make a difference. Is God going to execute judgment against unrighteousness, against sinfulness? Yes. But God is going to use His people to walk in His way, and He's going to ultimately destroy those who do not. It's simple. It's not complicated. You don't have to have a 365-point version for your life. You don't have to have a thousand-point plan for how to live your life. But you do have to understand what the Bible is saying. Beloved, you do have to know that some things in your life are going to be lived out slightly differently than what they're going to be lived out in my life. That's okay as long as it's lived to the glory of God. That's okay as long as it's not contradicting the way and the Word of God. You may organize your life slightly different than mine. Ms. Tara and I got to talking about this the other day. She's, she, she and I are going through some of the books that were gifted to me, and there's, there's a pile of books over at our house right now that was gifted to me, and we're trying to go through some of them. Some of them just aren't worth keeping, so we're trying to discard those. Some of those are just questionable. But we came down to something that was a devotional, and it was like 100 days in the Psalms or something like that. And frankly, I mean, you ask me, just spent 100 days reading Psalms. 
That's what I would say to you. Just read 100 days reading Psalms. But for somebody else, it might really help them to have this book. It might really help them to have a devotional to walk through this. Your way of approaching this may be different than my way of approaching this. But beloved, we should be submitted to God. Don't let us do the way, live the ways of the world. Let us instead live the way of God. I will go back to you again and tell you that verse 12 is seemingly small. But verse 12 just may be the heart of this text. That it was that all flesh had corrupted His way upon the earth. In verse 13 it says, And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. That which He has created, that which they have corrupted, He is going to use it to destroy them. It's interesting to me. I know I'm jumping ahead, but did you read about how the, the, the Egyptians, they were known for their great armies of the time, and they were known for their great sea, for the Nile River, for these other rivers that were able to flood their countries in times of harvest. They were able to be supplied that the Red Sea and all of the Nile River and such as these, they were that which supported and which showed their economic power in the land. But do you see that God was the one who parted the Red Sea? And that God caused the Red Sea to collapse upon those that were chasing the Israelites down? What was supposed to be their power belonged to God in the first place. Though they had corrupted it, He used it as judgment against them. Beloved, the worst things that we can do in life is set up things that are against the way of God and build them up and build them up. And how much I see of this in the world, that the world continues to set up system after system after system, which is sinful which is destructive, and one day it will be their own downfall. Beloved, how many times I think about, I was listening to the book of Esther, and how that Mordecai, no, not Mordecai, how the other guy in the story, I can't even remember his name right now off the top of my head, how that he was going to hang Mordecai on these gallows that he had built, but that how in the next part of the story that it wound up being that he was hung on the gallows he had built for Mordecai. Beloved, that's what the world is doing. Let them go further into sin. Let them go further into these things as we see and as we march. Yes, we're trying to call them out of it. Yes, we're trying to call them to God. Noah somewhere is called a preacher of righteousness. I don't know where, I can't remember how that was done. I don't see that here in the text here, but even still it was called that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. We ought to be proclaimers of righteousness, but beloved, never fear the rest of the world because if you belong to Him, He is going to preserve His people. He didn't say that He was going to preserve the rest of the world. No, He said He was going to destroy them with the earth. He said in verse 14, He said, Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Rooms shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. It's on the inside it's sealed, on the outside it's sealed. There's a topical sermon. We don't preach those around here, but I'll never forget one of the best topical sermons I've ever heard. Happened to be talked about being pitched within and pitched without. Love it, you've got to be saved on the inside, but you've got to be sanctified on the outside sometimes too. I've never forgotten that sermon. I don't want to preach it quite that way. I think it might miss part of the text. But beloved, I think it says something that there is an internal aspect of things and there is an external aspect of things that we need to be paying attention to. And it says the same of Noah, of Moses when he was put in that basket that it was pitched within. As I understand it, it was pitched without. It was salvation. That's what the people of God are able to see when they hear these verses. In verse 15 it says, And this is the fashion which thou shalt make of it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, and the breadth of it 50 cubits, and the height of it 30 cubits. A window that shalt thou make to the ark, and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above. And the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof, with lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make it. 
Beloved, he told Noah what to do. He didn't say, Noah, just go build a boat. He said, Noah, you're going to build a boat and you're going to build a boat this way. What is wonderful about God is He does give us specific instructions through His Word. If you want to know to live in the way of God, open His book and see what He has told us to do. Open His book and trust that His way is clear. It amazes to me, <clears throat> it amazes me how many of us want to know the secret will of God. How many of us have so much revealed in the Word of God of the way that we're supposed to be living, and yet in every instance we're trying to see the the secret, the unrevealed will of God. We're trying to find out, God, what's your will in this situation? I don't know. What does the Bible say about the situation? Beloved, we cling and we wonder what are we supposed to be doing when God has given us clear and present instructions on the way that we're supposed to be living. If you're looking at the wilderness people in this wilderness time, that's exactly what they've been trying to do. They're trying to figure out, we don't know what's become of Moses, so we're going to ask Aaron to make us a molten calf. We don't know how to live according to God's plan, so we're going to live according to our own plan. I submit to you that that's each and every one of us if we are not careful. That every one of us will go astray and try to make it our own way. That God has given us specificity in order to follow Him. If you don't believe me, just try to go through and read the rest of this Bible. Especially when you start talking in the book of Exodus, when he starts describing the temple, how much detail he describes it in. Especially in Deuteronomy, in Leviticus, in Numbers, as he's communicating the exactness of all these different things. Our God is an exact God. He is one who has given us an order to follow. He's given us a way to follow. Let us not be as the world that corrupts it. But I'm way ahead of, our, of myself. Let us be as Noah who follows it. It says in verse 17, And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. But, this is our final movement of the text, But with thee will I establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, and thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort, shall thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female, of fowls after their kind, and of cattle after their kind. Of every creeping thing of the earth after his kind, two of every sort, shall come unto thee to keep them alive. And take thou unto thee of all food that is eaten, and thou shalt gather it to thee, and it shall be for food for thee and for them. It amazes me that he said the animals are going to come to you. I don't see that Noah had to go out there and wrangle them up. I see that they came to him. I see that God is taking care of Noah in that. God has said, I'm going to execute my judgment against sin, but I'm going to preserve my people all the same. That every promise that he has given us, he's going to fulfill. But notice verse 22. He says, thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him, so did he. told you so many of these are bookends throughout this passage. It's just the way that it was poetically written. It's the way and instruction of the writers trying to clue us into something. I think verses 9 through 13 are kind of the heart of this text. But I want us to pay attention to the bookends too. That you start out, man's living according to any way that he should so please. That they have corrupted the earth. That they're not following the way of God. But by the end of this text, Noah did all that God commanded him. And so did he. According to all that command, God commanded him, so did he. 
Beloved, the most simple thing we can do is obey God. Yes, God is going to execute judgment and exercise judgment against sin, but He always preserves His way through His people. May we be those that walk in the way of God this morning as His people. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank You for this passage again. We pray that You would make it clear to us, O oh God. Father, Your way is clear through Your Word. And sometimes we get it mixed up with other things. Sometimes we have bad framework coming to Your Word. God, I pray that You would clarify Your Word within each and every one of our hearts. I pray that we would be those that walk in Your way and walk in Your will, O oh God. Father, there's not much that we have to do when we walk so different from the rest of this world. I got, God, I just pray for that simplicity within every one of us, O oh God. Father, I pray that we would live lives that just simply reflect the gospel, that, God, we don't have to have the fancy plans, but that we just cling and cleave to your plan, O oh God. Lord, may we serve you. May we be your people. May we walk in your way that the rest of the world may see and that they too may want to walk in the same way, O oh God, with you, that they may enjoy the fellowship that we have with you now and that they may enjoy the fellowship which is to come in that time to come when your Son returns, Father, when we're gathered with you for all of eternity. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We pray you be with us always in thy son, Jesus Christ, holy and wonderful name. Amen. And amen. I can thank